The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, you know, I hope you realize your occupation, your place in life, your uh, giftedness, your, your particular role or roles, that they're significant. And if you, you know, if you think of those things as maybe not being spiritual and maybe don't seem significant, in the words of uh, famous old comedian Bob Newhart, let me just say, stop it. If you don't know who Bob Newhart is, you can write me at PastorBrianBCC at gmail.com and I will send you an important video to explain that to you. But there's a better uh, explanation or, or encouragement to us, something that Randy Alcorn wrote. Let me read this to you. He writes, if, if you are working a secular job, secular job, you are not second class in God's kingdom. You are no less called or gifted than a pastor or a missionary. Your ministry is to represent Jesus in your own sphere of influence and to provide financial support that enables others to do the work God equips them to do. So if God has wired you to be good at what you do, whether business or art, manufacturing or farming, music or medicine, or anything that allows you to freely help the needy and further the cause of Christ... Rejoice. This is a great use of your life. Leaving your job for full-time ministry may not be a step up for the kingdom of God, but a step down. God may have given you the ability right where you are to help churches and missionaries reach those God has called them to, as well as the ability to reach others in your own unique sphere of ministry. Whether you're a grocery, grocery clerk, an assembly line worker, a salesperson, a nurse, a flight attendant, a stay-at-home mom, or a professional athlete, or whether you have a, a primary ministry of prayer or encouraging people, God has given you a unique platform. In all likelihood, no pastor or missionary will reach your neighbors, teachers, co-workers, coaches, or teammates. We each have our own God-given mission fields to serve every day. So use your platform for the glory of God and then give generously to the causes of evangelism, justice, and mercy that are close to his heart. God doesn't just call his people to the far reaches of the earth for his kingdom. He also equips many servants to support and supply workers and to meanwhile represent him in their their own territory, right where they live and work. Whatever he has called you to do, do it with your whole heart, giving generously out of the overflow that he's entrusted you to. May each of us live daily in such a way as to look forward to hearing the Lord say to us when we meet him face to face, well done, well 
done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in managing small amounts, so I will put you in charge of large amounts. Come on in and share my happiness. Let's, let's pray before we um, go to our text of John 17, um, verses 18 and 19. Let's pray. Father, uh, what we've read is, is true. You've gifted each of us to represent you and speak of you. To give generously for the sake of others who tell the good news of Jesus. So help each believer here to know that you are sovereign over their particular calling, their role, their influence to family or neighbors or co-workers. It's all significant. It's, it's your sovereign plan. And as you sent Jesus, so Jesus sends us. Give us courage to speak. Give us love for those who are in the dark. Give us the grace to continue on, even if they hate us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, still going through this wonderful prayer of Jesus in John 17. We're going to look at verses 18 and 19. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he prays, As you sent me into the world... So I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is God's word. Um, I want to start with verse 19. Verse 19 is really the foundation of verse 18. Jesus Jesus sends us, and verse 19 explains uh, his equipping for us. If we belong to Jesus, then, then he sends us. And where we go um, are these, these callings, these areas of influence that are unique to you. And these may, uh, like I said earlier, they may change over time. Different seasons of your life. But the truth is we're all sent ones. We're all, we all have a mission field. Verse 19 tells us that if we belong to Jesus, then sanctification is not optional. He sends all of us. He equips all of us. And so our lives really are significant. They really are purposeful. We really are sent into the world for his glory. Jesus says that he, in, in verse, he, says that he consecrates. He uses this term. That he consecrates, or we might say sanctifies himself. In other words, he sets himself apart for holy service unto God. And he tells us why. He, uh, we might ask, you know, why does Jesus consecrate himself? Why does he set himself apart? And we know that he's approaching the cross. That this is, this is, his, this is what God sent him to do. So it's in preparation for the cross. And verse 19 tells us um, why Jesus sets himself apart. Why does he consecrate himself? Verse 19 tells us that it's for their sake. For the sake of these first disciples. And, and since this has to do with the cross, it applies to us as well. So he sets himself apart for your sake. For our sake. And the ne- next question would be to accomplish what? 
And our minds, when we think of the cross, rightly go to salvation. For our sake, he paid the price. The price that we could never pay. The penalty that we deserve. Uh, He paid it for us. The sacrificial death on the cross. So that we might be forgiven. That we might be reconciled to God. And all of this is true. But this is not what Jesus mentions here. No, instead Jesus says that he consecrates himself for our sake. That they also may be sanctified in the truth. Jesus sets himself apart, revealing gospel truth in the ultimate display of God's grace and justice at the cross for our sake, so that we might be sanctified in truth. So let's be clear about the meaning of sanctification, because what we often think of with sanctification is that it's this this process whereby we are Uh, progressively growing in moral purity, in holiness. And this is true. This is a true sense of the word. But it's not the only sense of the word. Because clearly, Jesus, who is without sin, who says that he, he consecrates or sanctifies himself, doesn't need to grow in moral purity. He's sinless. He's perfect. He's holy. But there's another related meaning in this word, and it has to do with being set apart. Set apart for holy service to God. And this is what Jesus is speaking of concerning himself. I say it's related because as it applies to us, as God's people, as those who are united to Christ, we're we're clearly set apart for God. We're clearly set apart for service unto him. Our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We are set apart for holy service unto God. And the service that glorifies him is a right representation of him. So progressively growing into the likeness of Jesus also has to do with sanctification. It's it's his purpose that those who represent him represent him truly. And so the work he begins in us, setting us apart, he completes in us, conforming us uh, into godliness. This, This is God's work. This is what Jesus intends for us as he sets himself apart for the cross. And so one thing that we should be clear about is that our sanctification is not some... Optional blessing for some Christians, or, you know, those better Christians, while some just have a ticket to heaven, and that's all that salvation is. No, sanctification is not an optional blessing. Jesus died to save us unto himself, meaning that salvation brings about our sanctification, in both senses of the word. Jesus went to the cross... Not only to save us from hell, but to save us from who we once were. To sanctify. To give us a new mind and will. New desires to go and do and rightly represent who God truly is. To communicate this, his glory, 
in a dark world. Being sanctified in truth has to do with what Paul describes in Ephesians 4. The truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the mind of your in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The truth of our sanctification is in Christ. If you're in Christ, then you will put off your old self because it's no longer who you are. And you will put on this new self because this is who God created you to be. Your sanctification actually springs from Jesus and his sanctification, his consecration or setting himself apart. Think of the, the high priests in the Old Testament. They would, they would first sanctify themselves, and then they would, they would sprinkle blood to sanctify the objects within the temple. Well, Jesus sanctifies himself, not in the same way that these priests did, because he's without sin. He doesn't have to offer anything for himself, but he, he sanctifies himself in the sense of setting himself apart unto God and this holy service, and he sprinkles us with his own blood. Our striving and efforts for holiness are not done in our own name, but in Christ. Not in our own strength, but in Christ. Not even for our own sakes, but for Christ. So a key to our Our growth in godliness is to realize that it rests in Jesus sanctifying himself for us. Hebrews 10.14 explains that by a single offering as our great high priest, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so in our text we read something similar. For their sake I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. We are to pursue practical holiness, not simply to to be holy, but as a result of having been made holy in Christ. Our union with Christ means that our sanctification is because of his sanctification. This is the point that Paul makes in Romans 6. We, we have all this identification, this union with Christ. On the, this is the basis, this is the motivation of our holiness. Since we have been united to Christ in his death, and united to him in his resurrection, therefore, we are told, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. And alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. You see why it's not optional? Our sanctification corresponds to Christ's sanctification. Jesus consecrated himself in order to set us apart for holy, for for worship and service to God. Paul says that we were saved from idols to serve. To serve the living and true God. 
So salvation is more than a ticket. He saves us. He saves us for a purpose in this life. And though our callings are not the same, we're set apart. We're sanctified for the same purpose. What are the same purposes to believe the truth, to love the truth, to speak the truth, to, to, to do God's truth in a world of darkness, a world that doesn't like truth or true truth. We're all called to represent Christ and share his truth. And with some, it'll be in your place of work, to your own family, with your own children, to your particular friends and neighbors. It's significant. It's your calling. Different gifts, different circumstances, and all important and given by God. It's not just those called to the mission field or full-time Christian ministry. It's all of us set apart, called, gifted to represent Christ right where he has us. Christ became to us wisdom. We need wisdom in all the various circumstances of our life. Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So if you don't doubt that the cross saved you from hell, if you don't doubt that his, his work guarantees forgiveness and eternal life, then don't doubt that Christ became your sanctification as well. Verse 19 says that we are set apart for holy service unto God. And verse 18 describes what that service is. He equips you. He grows you. He, he sends you into the world. And there are three important points in verse 18 concerning, concerning your mission. First is that, that Christ is the one who sends you. Christ is the one who sends us. Again, this, this directly applies to this, the first disciples. It's in this middle section of the prayer. Um, and so it, it directly applies to them. And, and we need to recognize their calling is different than ours. They are the ones through whom the Holy Spirit spoke and they completed the canon of Scripture in writing the New Testament. They are the ones that were given miraculous signs as evidence of their unique authority. They laid the foundation for the church and, and we build upon it. They were, I heard this um, description sometime back and I really like it. They were, they were big A apostles. And we are little a apostles. And I say that it this way because there's a difference between their authoritative foundational office or title and a word that's truly descriptive of us. But it's not an office. It's not a title. The Greek verb that means to send is apostello. And the noun form of this word is apostle. Or sent one. And so we're all apostles in that little a sense of the word. We are all sent ones. But the big a apostles were sent to do something 
that we are not sent to do. They were sent to do something unique, something that, that needed a unique authority. And that work is complete. It's done. That office, that role is not to be repeated because the foundation is laid and the structure of the church is built upon that. We don't keep laying foundations. So to avoid um, any confusion, I promise I will not refer to myself as the Apostle Brian. That would just be weird. If anyone's... People call themselves that, though. Apostle such and such. If someone ever says that to you, just say, Hey, me too. I'm sent. What a great calling we have. Those who are actually sent by Christ. The second point in verse 18 is that he sends us into the world. Jesus still has some remaining sheep that he is calling out of the world. And the way that he calls them is by sending you, by sending us. He loves them. He cares for them. And so in saving us, he sends us to gather them in. As much as it may seem nice, we, you know, we like safety. As much as it may seem nice to, to huddle together, to avoid this world that, that hates us or, or, or should hate us. And I spoke of that last Sunday. Steve Murphy, always being the thoughtful guy, wanting to comfort me, reassured me and said, Brian, I know there are a lot of people that hate you, so don't worry. Um... So the world should hate us. This is, we have a calling. We're sent by Christ to go into the world. It's a great challenge because the world will hate those who stand for God's truth. The world will hate those who resemble the holiness of Jesus. The evil one wants to corrupt. He wants to tempt us to to compromise, to conform to the world instead of conforming to Jesus. And so the challenge, the, the temptation is for us to, you know, again, being, in our, being amongst ourselves and not being in the world, it just seems safe. And I think that's part of what Satan is up to, for us to prioritize our safety over our mission. And safety seems good, doesn't it? It seems like the wise, protective, um, responsible thing for us to prioritize. And if ever we lived in a day where safety is prioritized, it's today. And there's a challenge. Because we don't want to be, we don't want to be irresponsible. Safety is a good thing. And this is a big thing that's on our minds and our situations are all different but we need to we need to understand that sometimes priority prioritizing safety it is the responsible thing to do and sometimes um, it's irresponsible of us that's the challenge um, that prioritizing safety can be irresponsible and we have examples that we look at over the last two years. Is Satan, is he conditioning us to prioritize safety with bigger things in mind, in his mind? Bigger things to make us, to make us the church, hesitate. 
to make us avoid engaging with a world that's dangerous. So we need to be careful with making safety our goal. It's not our goal. If we do, if safety were the goal, then why would missionaries risk life and health and comfort and go to a place that's a risk to all of, the, all of these things and sharing the gospel? If safety is our priority, then why would we ever let our children be friends with unbelieving neighbors who are likely or possibly going to expose them to some bad words or bad ideas? We need wisdom in all of these decisions. In the name of safety, we're living in fear. And we're growing accustomed to avoiding people. And that's concerning. In the name of safety... What have we done? Well, let's just print more money and encourage people to stay home and not go back to work. In the name of safety, businesses are shut down. Jobs have been lost. In the name of safety, children's education and development have been stunted. In the name of safety, people are more fearful and suspicious and judgmental. And churches are divided and society is polarized, and youth suicide rates are soaring, surgeries delayed, families kept from loved ones who end up dying alone, mental health negatively affected by isolation, all in the name of safety. And again, safety is good, but we need wisdom and how to apply it in your particular situation, which is different than mine. But if we make safety the goal, we're, in, we're never going to go. We're never going to risk. All in the name of safety. It's hard to argue against being safe. It just seems right. And certainly there's wisdom in some situations. Yet, too much safety is dangerous. It's short-sighted. It's irresponsible. And this really concerns me um, for something bigger. It concerns me even more as I think it's making people, God's people fearful. That concerns me more. Are we just becoming fearful? And this is not who he calls us to be. We are not to be those who live in fear and yet... Fear keeps us from church. Fear keeps us from loving our neighbor. Fear keeps us from ever being like the brave missionaries of the past. Fear keeps us from obeying Jesus in our own spheres of influence where he sends us among a people who will likely hate us. Fear prioritizing safety is not compatible with this calling to go and live in the world. And a related fear, one that existed way before lockdowns, a related fear is just this temptation for Christians to stay within the safe Christian subculture. Only working for Christian companies or only hiring Christian workers, looking for the little fish in the 
you don't remember yellow pages, but um, only going to Christian schools, only listening to Christian music, only wearing Christian t-shirts, only watching Christian movies and listening to Christian comedians and reading Christian books. And again, my family owns a Christian bookstore. And if my kids were little again, we would homeschool them likely. So I'm not criticizing any of it. Um, other than maybe Christian bumper stickers. Now that, um, no, the point is, how do we obey Jesus? How do we obey Jesus while still being safe? Being wise. Protecting our loved ones from harm. That's a good thing. It's a wise thing. But we're also told to go and live in the world. Preparing our children to do so when it seems best and right, and and to what degree. I'm not going to... There is no formula. There is no checklist. Pray for wisdom. Christ is your wisdom. But this is our calling. So we pray. We do what seems wise in our particular situation. We grow in our faith. We put on the Christian armor and realize there are dangers. We discern how best to go and live in a world for the sake of Christ. In a world that should hate us. With an enemy who wants to tempt us and corrupt us. But isn't Jesus bigger? Hasn't he prayed? Isn't he ever interceding for us? And hasn't he given us his spirit, his church, to support, to help, to build us up and encourage us, to to keep us going in the name of Christ? Isn't he sovereign over all of this? Hasn't he promised to work all things for your good? Hasn't he told us that if God is for us, who can be against us? Hasn't he said that in tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness, danger or sword, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us? Are we ever promised To be kept safe from these things? That we'll be safe in this life? No. No. But what he has promised us is that none of these things can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is way bigger. So we're not safe in this world. But ultimately, eternally speaking, nothing can touch us. We're sent by Jesus into this world and James Boyce recommends that we are to know non-Christians, befriend them, enter into their lives in such a way that we begin to infect them with the gospel rather than their infecting us with their worldliness. Jesus sanctifies us. He prepares us. In order to send us. And so instead of safety. Be in the word of God. And grow in your faith. And set yourself apart for your particular calling. I love what Richard Phillips said. uh, What a difference there is for an unbeliever to live next door to a Christian whose holiness is intended as an affront. Versus a Christian whose holiness is intended as an invitation. Christ's holiness was always a breath of fresh air in the presence of sinners. 
intending offense only to the self-righteous and proud. In verse 18, there's a, there's a third important point. Not only are we sent by Christ and, and into the world, but he says that we are sent as he was sent. As he was sent by the Father. So, how was Jesus sent? He was sent with, a, with an attitude of, of submission. A willing submission to do the Father's will. And so we should humbly submit to our calling as well. The Father didn't send Jesus into, into comfort and safety and, and justice, right? And this is really hard because some of my favorite things are comfort, safety, and being understood by people. Justice. So if we are sent as he was sent, then we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. We should submit to God's good and sovereign will, even if we endure humiliation and rejection and false shame, even if it's hard, even if it's exhausting and uncomfortable. I'd like to close uh, this morning with an example from someone I immediately think of when it comes to engaging with the world in a Jesus-like way. Uh, Many of you are familiar with Rosario Butterfield. Uh, Here's how she describes herself. She says that she was a lesbian feminist activist English professor at Syracuse University. And her conversion story is a shining example to us. She writes this. I thought I was doing research on this odd tribe of people called Christians. People who stood in the way of full civil rights for gay people like me. Ken was the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. On that July night, Ken opened the door and warmly embraced me and welcomed me inside. Dining with my enemies was a fascinating experience. For years, and before I became a believer, Ken became my pastor. Or, and Ken became my pastor. I enjoyed the company of the Smith's Table Fellowship. I sat under Ken's family devotions and joined in the psalm singing. And then at this July dinner, I realized it. I wasn't the victim dining with my persecutors. I wasn't at the enemy's table. I was the enemy. I thought I was on the right side of history. It was my undoing to finally realize that it was Jesus I was persecuting the whole time. Not some historical figure named Jesus, but King Jesus. The Jesus who was this world's sovereign king and would become my Lord, my, my Jesus, my prophet, priest, king, friend, brother, and savior, that Jesus. I don't like thinking about the fact that I was the enemy who hated, the enemy who cursed, the enemy who abused. But it's true. And instead of hating me back, Ken Smith assembled such a wide team of prayer warriors that I likely won't meet all of the believers who prayed for my salvation until heaven. As soon as the Lord claimed me for himself, I had the opportunity to model what had been given to me, to 
they were sent in her life, and now she's going for the sake of others. I had the opportunity to model what had been given to me, to love, do good, bless, pray for those who curse me. And it's a lot harder than it sounds. Everyone from the lesbian partner I broke up with to the graduate students in queer theory whose PhD dissertations I could no longer supervise to the LGBTQ plus undergraduate student groups I could no longer support felt the stunning betrayal. I had changed my allegiance. Were their secrets still safe with me? I was disappointing almost everyone I loved because I believed in Jesus, the real Jesus who reveals himself in the Bible. My treachery to my lesbian community was only bearable through my union with Christ. In such circumstances, union with Christ is the source of a Christian's love that overcomes hatred. It springs from the power of Christ's resurrection in which every believer abides. Conflict with others is never pleasant. It is disarming, disillusioning, and depressing. Union with Christ is our active comfort. More recently, I found myself under attack again. And this time on three different fronts. A national LGBTQ plus rights group grew angry with me as the 2020 Pride Parade was canceled for the first time in 50 years. Christians from a discernment ministry believed that I was too charitable in my evangelism in the LGBTQ community. Self-described gay Christians believed that I was too harsh in my rejection of gay Christianity. It was tempting to handle this in the flesh, to wish that all of these people could be locked in the same room to wrestle it out. But that is not what God calls us to do when we're under attack. That is not what God calls us to do. God calls us to love our enemies. This season was spiritually rich with psalm singing and reflection, repentance, and prayer. As the negative attacks intensified, the words of the great Puritan John Owen started to make sense. Owen considers union with Christ, quote, the cause of all other graces a believer receives, unquote. This is because union with Christ depends first on Christ knowing you. Do you want to know why the church lacks unity? Because we try to build our unity on issues, on where we stand on pressing matters of the day. But unity does not and will never derive, uh, will never derive from shared loyalty to issues. Christian unity flows from our union with Christ because he alone equips us to die to ourselves. In God's providence as believers, we will have many opportunities to love, do good, bless, pray for those who hate us. And as God enlarges our hearts by his spirit, comforting us through union with Christ and assuring us of his sovereignty, we will not fail to do so. Wow. 
great message. Great example to us. To love and not be threatened. To recognize that that Jesus is the one who sends us. That he sends us into a world that hated him. And because we are united to him, we are being sanctified as those who are sent, as he was sent. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you. Thank you for your only son that you have sent for us. Showing us your glory. Saving us. Sanctifying us. Saving us not only from the punishment we deserve. Not only uh, to a glorious home. But saving us so that we might be set apart for your purposes. Bringing glory to you as our minds are renewed, as we are changed by your word, as we are conformed into the image of Christ, as we are prepared to go where you call us to go. Lord, please bless and reassure your people that you have sent them, that their particular occupations and roles and giftedness are very significant. Lord, give us wisdom, give us, give us courage as we recognize our callings and as we shine your light wherever we are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.